Listener Production. We've been telling you about this amazing new podcast series called Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. And Katrina, it's this amazing story of someone who's actually a friend of yours who came across this photo at her mother's wake. And it's going off on the podcast charts and you're actually going to interview Amelia today on The Briefing. Yeah, so Amelia was at her mother's funeral when a photo tribute flashed up on the big screen and it showed a picture of Amelia's mum holding a baby and standing next to a man. Now, a friend of Amelia's who'd put this together thought the baby was Amelia and that that man was Amelia's dad, but... Amelia had no clue who the baby was, who the man was, and she started digging and it's opened up this Pandora's box of shame and cover-up and a really dark practice that was widespread in Australia. The peak of forced adoption or adoptions in Australia, there was one in every 28 babies. Between 1971 and 1972, one in every 28 babies in this country was adopted. That's 200 babies a week. Wow, that is crazy. We're going to find out all about that in our briefing today as we look at the podcast Secrets We Keep. First, here are today's headlines. It is Tuesday, August 15. Four Aussie surfers are missing at sea off the coast of Indonesia and a search and rescue operation is underway. So on Sunday, there was a group of 12 people on two wooden speedboats. They were heading off from Nias Island. That's about 120 kilometres from the North Sumatra coast when they hit bad weather. One of the boats made it, the other didn't. Uh, Along with the four Australians, there are also three crew members missing. This is uh, a beautiful beautiful part of the world, Tom, and so awful to think that something so heartbreaking could have happened on what was meant to be a celebratory trip. Yeah, so the group of Australians was there to celebrate the 30th birthday of a guy called Elliot Foote. He's a carpenter from Sydney. He was there with his girlfriend, Steph Weiss, and there's two of their friends missing, Will Teagle and Jordan Short as well. So just tragic. They were there having the time of their lives and this is all going down. Yeah, so Elliot's dad says there are life jackets and supplies on that boat that they were on and they're all just really hopeful that those on board are taking shelter and it's a case of poor visibility Mm. in the search for them and they'll ultimately be found okay. And federal police have arrested a 45-year-old man over a mid-flight emergency that forced a plane to turn back to Sydney late yesterday. It's alleged the man was threatening staff and passengers on flight MH122 bound for Malaysia, claiming he had a bomb in his bag. The plane then had to wait several hours on the tarmac at Sydney Airport with all the passengers on board. 32 domestic flights were cancelled as a result, while other domestic flights had delays of up to 90 minutes. And there were police cars flying through the streets of Sydney to get there yesterday afternoon. And my partner Amanda walked out from work and all these riot police fans were flying through the streets of Sydney as news reports started coming out that something was unfolding and now we know what happened. One Nation has dumped its New South Wales leader, Mark Latham, with Pauline Hanson temporarily stepping into the role. Latham has accused Hanson of enacting a bizarre takeover and says he was removed as state leader without consultation or due process. Hanson has said the removal was driven by the party's results at the state election. So it's all about the numbers, according Mm. to her, where the party's vote dropped by 14%. 
But all of this comes, Tom, after Hanson and Latham had that really big falling out over a graphic tweet Latham sent directed at Sydney MP Alex Greenwich back in March. And Greenwich has ended up suing Mark Latham for defamation over that. What an absolute shambles. They have three members in the upper house in the New South Wales Parliament. Um, so, you know, they shouldn't be treated as a joke in New South Wales, but that's what they're looking like right now. And the woman who cooked the fatal mushroom lunch has given a written statement to police detailing where she got the mushrooms and that she also ate the beef wellington pie and had to go to hospital herself. So Erin Patterson says she wrote this statement to police to clear things up. She says the mushrooms were a mix of button mushrooms from the supermarket and dried mushrooms she'd bought at least three months earlier at an Asian grocery store in Melbourne. She said the package of those dried mushrooms was hand-labelled. Now, as we know, the lunch resulted in the deaths of Patterson's in-laws and her mother-in-law's sister. Um, She also addresses the food dehydrator issue, admitting that she dumped it at the tip and that she'd lied to investigators when she told them she'd done that a long time ago. She says she panicked. Yeah, uh, she says she was at the hospital with her children discussing the food hydrator when her estranged husband, Simon, asked, quote, is that what you used to poison them? And Erin uh, Patterson says she then panicked, dumped the dehydrator at the tip, and um, she did that because she was worried she might lose custody of her children. Tom, there are certain stories that just grab the fascination of people mm. everywhere I've gone, everywhere I've gone. Mm. People have wanted to talk to me about this mushroom story. All right, Tom, I'm about to chat to journalist Amelia Oberhart, who is the brains behind an incredible new podcast talking not just about a really big family secret in her own life, but one that's affected thousands and thousands of other Australians. What if everything you believed about your family and your life was wrong? And what if you discovered you weren't really who you thought you were? Well, journalist Amelia Oberhart thought she knew her mum until she died. At her mum's wake, Amelia discovered a photo of her mum as a teenager wearing a wedding ring, standing beside a man and cuddling an unknown baby. She didn't know who the baby was. She didn't know who this man was. And this led to a journey that actually ended up uncovering not just that family secret, but a much bigger one of 1950s to 1970s Australia. Today's episode is a preview of Amelia's new listener podcast series called The Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. It's out now and Amelia joins me in the studio to talk about this amazing podcast and what she uncovered now. Amelia, it is so wonderful to have you speaking with me about this incredible new podcast of yours. You're a journalist, but also this amazing story happened to you and it's something super personal. I guess, where did you begin when you had that journalistic instinct of knowing this is a great story, but also this is going to be a very emotional path for me to go down. I mean, my mum had passed away 12 years ago and 
in the process of trying to, I guess, get some closure and some healing, um, she'd passed away from alcoholism. And I mean, anyone that has known or loved someone with an addiction knows the varying ways those relationships can break down. And I mean, by the time she'd passed away, I, I definitely had more questions than answers. And I then went on to have children on my own. And as as I started having kids, Every time I had one, <laughs> there's plenty of them. There's just three. <laughs> only three. <laughs> yes, but, um, you know, I'm outnumbered. But um, so every time I would have one, I would it would start to spark this kind of interest in me of this wanting desperately to understand her so that I could not be like her in, in the saddest way, um, but also so I could be the best mum I wanted to be. But not till I had my daughter Harper in 2021 did I really start to ramp up this... I guess it's desperation for closure. Yeah. As I started to talk to people, everybody would say to me, this happened to me. You know, I know someone this happened to. Oh, my uncle's actually my brother. Oh, well, my sister was my mum or my cousin's cousin is this. Or the next door neighbour disappeared for a year. Or I started to realise, well, there is a way bigger story here than just mine and a way more important one than just mine. I think there was a whole generation of women that had been told to sit down and shut up and never talk about it again. And the ramifications for that, I think, have been enormous. And I wanted to better understand the context of my mum and, and where she grew up and how she may have come to be the way she was by the end. When it comes to secrets, you talk about family secrets, but this is so much bigger than that. It's a secret that was kept by a whole generation of women. Where did you start unpicking and unraveling those secrets and getting people to talk to you? Well, I had this amazing producer, Ellen, and between us we had, you know, um, different people had volunteered their story to us in the process of just talking, you know, as I started to talk to people around town and started to recognise that the story was way more common than we even initially thought. And then Ellen started doing some sort of background digging into censuses and to the National Apology and into the Senate Inquiry. And that's where we started to realise the true scale of what had taken place um, and the amount, I guess, of cover-up that had also happened across Australia. And also it was wasn't just Australia. This was an international issue. Scotland has just done the biggest apology in the world to forced adoption victims. And same with Ireland, Magdalene Laundries, obviously, you know, there's a million stories about those. And they originally came from Ireland. And the saying Irish Catholic guilt, <laughs> obviously, heavily influenced the things that took place internationally. America, you know, everywhere we looked, there was an element of forced adoption across the world. And so we quickly realised this was a story, bizarrely, no one had really covered in any long-form docuseries. And so we thought this was definitely a story worth telling. Where did this era of forced adoptions begin? And have you worked out, you've got some numbers, some statistics in the podcast, but have you worked out just how many people it's affected in Australia? We've spoken extensively with people that have done PhDs, experts in the field, you know, people that studied it at university. What the, I guess, the findings of the Senate inquiry anyway, were that the peak of forced adoption or adoptions in Australia, there was one in every 28 babies between 1971 and 1972. One in every 28 babies in this country was adopted. That's 200 babies a week. The scale of it, and that was formal adoptions, but they were called closed adoptions. And this was 
they, they judge this forced adoption uh, stats off 1951 to 1976, but we know that it was occurring before then and after then, but the captured data sort of sits in, the, in that 51 to 76 era. We can't know for certain how many of those babies were forced to be adopted, but it's called the historical forced adoption era because if you were an unwed mother or single, you had no option but to give away your baby. There was no single parent payments unless you came from a wealthy family that was going to support you by keeping a baby out of wedlock, which would also, from a society point of view, be very unlikely. You know, these women were often told nothing about what was going to happen to them until the baby was born. And this was no matter how old these women were or even if they were intending to be married. So, yeah, it wasn't even single women. This was just the fact you were unwed. You know, we speak with Lily Arthur, who's 16 and 11 months, and she's living with her boyfriend and she's worked full time. They find out she's pregnant and they fire on the spot, which also is what happened in the public service. Once you got pregnant, you lost your job. It would be very unlikely anyone else would allow you to have a baby and work. And even then, how would you afford daycare? Even, you know, your options were a dead end. So Lily Arthur's 16 and 11 months. Her partner flies to Sydney or trains to Sydney to find her parents to get them to sign consent for them to get married. He shows up at the Magdalene Laundry and says, let's, you know, I'm here to marry her. And they never tell her that. And they almost made it impossible for people to get married. And then if you were just simply unwed, there was no option either to keep your baby. Lily's interview was so heartbreaking and one of the things that she said that it actually brought me to tears, she said every day you lose a little bit of hope and then you become like a zombie because you know you're trapped like a rat in a trap. And then she goes on to tell you, Amelia, how she gave birth with her face pushed into a mattress. She had one of her feet up in forceps. She had a nurse pushing her down. She said that she didn't feel as though she existed like a human being anymore. And the flow on effects of that in terms of the ramifications in her life, she then went on to get married, had a daughter. She said that she felt disentitled to be a mother and has never even hugged her daughter, not even to this day. And her daughter is now in her 50s. The ramifications and the psychological ramifications particularly of what happened to these women, because they were never offered counselling, they were told, pretend this never happened, shut it down, move on, you will have other children, this is just one period in your life and this baby will never find you, no one will ever know, move on. And they spent their lives shutting it down and pretending it never happened. But they had the physical scars as well as the emotional scars. You know, they were often, as you say, pinned down. The babies ripped out of them. There was no care and consideration. And they often say they were treated or felt like they were being punished, that they were bad girls that had gone and done the wrong thing and they were paying that price. And that mentality of being a bad girl or the mentality of being told you are a disgrace to society, you know, that was the most common theme. And they were also told this is in the child's best interest. You are a bad person if you even think you can keep this child because Mm. in the child's best interest, it is that you never see it again and you never speak to it again and it's for their benefit. And then there was midwives and sisters and government officials all working together creating this narrative and supporting that narrative because they also had a massive shortage 
of babies and no IVF and no options for women that were finding themselves in a position they couldn't get pregnant or men that found themselves infertile. Or So they had this desperation of young married good couples that have done the right thing by society and they're good Catholics or good people and they can't have a baby and then you have Marge down the road that's just gone and got pregnant willy-nilly and <laughs> is this disgrace to society and so Marge should give her baby to the couple down the road and pretend that it never happened and Marge will move on with her life. Mm. Who has been successful in terms of seeking compensation? Has anyone managed to do that? There's a huge issue with the compensation. I mean, Victoria is the closest that's getting to a redress scheme. Uh, some people believe that they are dragging the chain out because they're an elderly population mm. and each year there's less of them fighting for financial redress. But they are in their inquiry, on a state-by-state state inquiry, they did agree to a redress scheme for psychological and psychiatric support. Um, and there is a one-off payment you can access in Victoria for $10,000. I mean, $10,000 doesn't go a long way when you've had your body mm. ripped in half mm. and nightmares for 50 years. But um, the rest of the country, there is a real issue because of the thing called the Statue of Limitations. The Statue of Limitations is a state-by-state state thing, but mostly it's three years, meaning those adoptees had you know, were three years old when they were going to sue their government. Both adoptees and mothers are calling for the statute of limitations to be lifted. Mm. I think it becomes a super complex issue because where does the fault lie? There's all these people that are working in conjunction with each other, but it's impossible to know the chicken or the egg. It all began with a photograph and a mystery baby, without wanting to give the ending away of whether you found out the identity of this baby and the, the backstory of, of who this baby is or was. Where have you landed? You said you wanted to understand your mum better. Do you feel like you do now? A hundred percent. I mean, I think if I'd gone on this journey privately, um, <laughs> I would have landed in the same spot I am publicly. But I think the important part about putting it publicly was that I have this deep level of understanding and compassion for her. And I thought if this podcast being on a public forum enabled someone else to listen and to feel that they could, sorry, I get really emotional, yeah. but if it could encourage one mother and daughter or child and mother or sisters or anyone that had questions uh, they needed answered or anyone that needed to have a hard conversation, if it encouraged that and it changed the outcome, then it was always worth it for me. And I mean, my mum won't ever come back and that outcome will forever be what it was. But I feel at peace and I feel going forward with my own children, I will be a different mum because of this process. That was Amelia Oberhart, who's the host of the new listener series, Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. It's out on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcast. There's a new episode that has just landed today. Listener.